Hi, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show for Tuesday, November 24th. Good to have you along. Coming up, Colin Furness from the University of Toronto clears up the inaccuracies in that video posted online by the barbecue guy in Etobicoke that decided to defy public health orders by staying open and offering indoor eating today. And his take on if the province's chief medical officer of health is the right man to continue through the pandemic. But first... Let's turn our attention to what's going on uh, south of the 49th parallel in the states. I'd like to welcome on to the program Reggie Cicchini, our Washington Bureau Chief. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Good morning. So, Reggie, uh, Trump, uh, his administration will begin formal transition of uh, power to Joe Biden. Uh, the wording regarding, uh, you know, Trump's administration and the transfer of power is interesting because didn't he say the assumed um, something like that, um, you know, president. Yeah, he's using the word apparent as apparent. Joe Biden, Joe, uh, Joe Biden being the apparent winner. And I will say some of the networks are also saying apparent winner as well. And that's simply because uh, some of the states have yet to certify their votes, uh, meaning that there is still possibilities out there. But at the end of the day, he is the president elect. It is moving forward. The uh, General Services Administration uh, acknowledged Joe Biden as the winner yesterday, did not use the word ascertain, but did unlock the keys and the finances that Biden needs in order to get his administration rolling. And how important was it was Michigan certifying Biden's victory yesterday 3 nothing to this? Uh, incredibly important because that certification is what led Emily Murphy to draft this letter and send it to the president elect. She said that she was waiting for uh, you know for, for for court cases to continue on, waiting for states to certify, understanding that she had a duty to be able to go ahead and do this, but was trying to look back to precedent during other legal challenges. And all that exists really is in 2000 uh, with the Bush v. Gore, which is a very different situation. But ultimately, uh, she has you know acknowledged Biden is the winner. She didn't use the word ascertain. He is moving forward. Michigan played a key role here. I know that 16 states have already certified their results. What are the biggies that we're waiting for? I, I mean, when I say we're, I guess uh, we're waiting for where Trump will finally concede that he has not won the election. Well, I mean, look, number one, that's probably not going to happen. The president put a tweet out last night around 11 o'clock that he will never concede, uh, which leaves it kind of open to the fact that he's going to forever peddle the fact uh, without any evidence that this election was stolen from him uh, because of fraud, which, again, that fraud has not been produced with evidence to anyone in a court around the United States. Uh, for when it comes to certification, after Michigan yesterday, Nevada is set to certify its results today. Next week, uh, Wisconsin will do so, and so will Arizona. Those are the key battleground states uh, where President Trump's lawyers were looking to actively overturn the results uh, or at least have electors put in place that would be more sympathetic to Donald Trump. Once those are certified, it would make it nearly impossible for uh, for the president to continue on with any kind of litigation because the electoral votes simply wouldn't be there. Uh, there's a couple of days to go until then, but that's likely not going to slow down some of this litigation. Can you speak to how important it is that uh, that formal transition of power process begins when it comes to coronavirus and other things that the that the United States are dealing with right now? Well, look, first and foremost, there are millions upon millions of dollars that are held back for an incoming administration. And without having that GSA assertion uh, or ascertainment, rather, what that means is that you're either having to self-fund or you're having to put on hold the things you need to get done, namely using the FBI to do background vets for uh, your cabinet positions, uh, which we've already seen some names come forward from the Biden team. But that's important when it comes to the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Joe Biden was relying on information from 
people outside of President Trump's inner circle to get vital details. Now that he's you know, been been given this kind of approval to go forward, he gets presidential daily briefings. He gets updates on what's happening with the COVID task force. He'll be able to talk to department heads and cabinet people uh, about uh, what's been going on in the weeks leading up to this. Uh, And, and, you know, it also allows for national security to kind of continue to be rolling forward because Joe Biden will be kept up to date. There's a lot that rides on the GSA formally accepting, formally uh, uh, acknowledging that that somebody won this election all right let me ask you this are we to believe that there's no one really um speaking in biden's ear and telling him giving him the lowdown on uh what's happening in the white house even without the the transition of power actually occurring I mean, look, it's very possible that there is somebody. Uh, Joe Biden is not somebody who's new to this game. He sat as the vice president. He has uh, significant ins when it comes to people in the political world. He was a senator uh, for decades. So this is not somebody who's walking into Washington unknown uh, to anybody around. And we also have the fact that the vice president-elect is still a sitting senator, so still gets the information that's passed on uh, to the committees that she sits on and to to the the, uh, kind of um, political... uh, events that she has to take part of uh, because she still is a sitting senator. So there is information that's being passed on, but the most critical and the most vital and the most confidential wouldn't be that is now going to be opened up to them. Now, Biden announced a number of his officials. You just mentioned that in his uh, in his administration. Some of them are very familiar. Can you give us an idea of who uh, he has placed and where and, and the strategy? Is it stability? Well, it's it's stability. It's bringing America back to where it was. And it's understanding that you don't need to have celebrities to be filling these positions. You don't need to have people that are linked in and tied to corporate America uh, filling the positions uh, of the president's cabinet. Uh, he's looking back to uh, the Obama administration to be able to kind of fill the void that he sees right now with experience. Somebody like John Kerry uh, filling the, the United Nations ambassador position, or at least nominating, with somebody with 35 years of foreign policy policy experience, taking people from the State Department and elevating them up, using somebody like Janet Yellen, who's the former Federal Reserve Chair, to be the Treasury Secretary, somebody who understands how to get America through an economic crisis. These are all positions that are going to be vital for America to kind of rebuild from where it is right now. And he's he's kind of drawing from a, a pool of names that have decades of experience under several different administrations uh, to be able to move forward. You know, after the election, we kept hearing uh, rumbles of people online and, uh, talking about the possibility of, uh, you know, the, the um, let's just say, civil war if, uh, if Trump supporters didn't go for this transition of power and, and the um, Biden administration taking over peacefully. I guess all that is, is kind of, it's fizzled out, hasn't it? Well, I mean, look, there are still more than 70 million Americans that voted for President Trump, uh, and there is going to be a majority of them that are not happy with the fact that either President Trump is stepping aside or conceding or whatever the administration is doing uh, verbally to to pave the way for, for Joe Biden. And I think the task for Joe Biden right now is to not only try to get America back to a place that he thinks it hasn't been for the last four years, but to also reach across the political aisle to say, you know, Republicans in Washington, lawmakers in Washington, 
Washington, but also supporters of Donald Trump. Uh, I may not be the person that you wanted to be in office, but I'm here for you and I'm going to try to work with you. And I think that's what you're seeing with some of these cabinet positions that he's trying to fill. They're not these kind of uh, activist positions. They're simply people who understand what could be best for the country, because this is a man who now has to be tasked with not only bringing the U.S. out of the COVID crisis and the economic meltdown. He also needs to try to mend together what has been a growing divide politically uh, over the last four years, which is continuing to grow, especially when you have a president who continues to push these baseless allegations that this election was stolen because of fraud that simply doesn't exist. Thank you very much uh, for getting us up to speed on what's going on south of the border. I always appreciate having you on, Reggie. Thank you. Cheers. That's Reggie Cicchini, our Global Washington producer for uh, Global News. Uh, let's go to Dr. Cullen Furness. Welcome to the program. Good to have you on. Good morning. Hey, um, so you just heard Doug Ford talking about how he is a, uh, a great dance partner um, when he talks about Dr. David Williams. Does dancing have anything to do with this? Obviously, that's a metaphor. Well, I, I kind of feel like our COVID management is, is about to waltz off the edge of a cliff, so I guess we could extend that metaphor. But I, if, if we stick with it, no, I don't think he's a good dancer at all. Um, I think I think Mr. Ford really wants to maintain control over the pandemic. All the decision-making is political and business-oriented, and I'm not saying those aren't important. Um, but Dr. Williams is supposed to defend health. He's supposed to defend that turf. He's not supposed to, say, stand up in front of Ontarians with a color-coded scheme for reopening the province that he knows represents a lie, that he knows represents uh, a rejection of scientific evidence, and he presented it as harm reduction. Let's, let's think about that. Let that sink in. The day we hit a new record, he's presenting a plan to open businesses. This is just a couple of weeks ago that mm-hmm. he calls harm reduction. We're going, to, we're going to open everything up, and we're going to say that that represents harm reduction. It's the opposite of harm reduction, and, and I think uh, based on that, uh, that alone and that's merely the, the latest misstep. But that, to me, that's the smoking gun. He lied to Ontarians. The physicians aren't supposed to do that. His policies have caused harm to Ontarians. Physicians aren't supposed to do that. He's supposed to act independently. He hasn't. So I think any way you slice it, he hasn't done his job. He doesn't seem to know that. And in my estimation, he doesn't understand public health. Okay, what's at risk then keeping this guy on for, you know, another term to September 1st? Because uh, the argument is it's consistency. Well, you know, it, consistency consistency sort of makes sense. I guess I've heard, you know, you you go into the battle with the soldiers you have, but you know what? When you have an incompetent general, you fire them so that your soldiers have a chance at winning. And I think that's the situation we have. Um, con- consistency or constancy, I, I mean, Mr. Ford has changed his approach from let's open everything up to let's shut everything down. He's done that in a few days. So I don't think consistency is actually a priority or should even be a factor. We should be making smart decisions based on science. And and Dr. Williams hasn't done that, and he hasn't forced Mr. Ford to do that. All right. So uh, you're saying, is, is there someone that you have in mind that would be a good chief medical officer of health? I mean, one of the things that's been really uh, unfortunate for, and I know I'm throwing a couple of questions in here, though, for uh, people, is the fact that the, they're confused by the messaging. Now, so we have, in your opinion, a chief medical officer of health that's in lockstep with the premier. So the messaging shouldn't be confusing at all. What if we get one that says, no, that's not it at all. Uh, I completely disagree with the premier. Could that lead to more confusion? 
Well, that conversation probably should probably happen backstage, no question. But I've, I've, uh, I did a comparison in the summer by province. What percentage, when, when, and I talked about CBC coverage, what percentage was actually um, of, of media communication was actually uh, the chief medical officer of health versus the elected politician? In Ontario, it was 80%. It was the highest in the country. In other words, the messaging should be coming from the physician. I don't think Mr. Ford understands some of the direction he's been given. I don't, and when you don't understand your own communication, you're not going to be able to do it clearly. So that's, that is definitely part of the problem. All right. Interesting. Uh, let's uh, move on to this guy who is, I don't know, he could be being ticketed right now for all I know. In Etobicoke, he runs a barbecue restaurant and he said that he's going to keep it open in violation of the uh, public health orders to shut down indoor dining. He's going to open today for indoor dining. Now, I think he's in for a whole world of uh, uh, ticketing hurt uh, and he's going to be facing some pretty stiff fines. But on his social media account, he broke into some interesting um, uh, what he thinks is uh, the appropriate breakdown of what's going on with regard to science in, when it comes to the province's COVID testing. Can I just play it for you and, and can you respond to it? Of course. All right. I don't have enough time and you guys don't want to watch a 15 minute long video of me going on about this, but I'm going to start with just one point. We're using PCR tests with a cycle threshold of over 40 to drive hysteria around case counts. Now, if we go past a certain case count per 100,000, or if we go past 2.5% positivity rate, we are in the red zone and the whole province or region is locked down. Bars, restaurants, and gyms have to close. Okay, what's your reaction to his take on on what's going on provincially when it comes to the science of testing? Uh, that's a very problematic statement because he's using a lot of numbers and a lot of precision to create the impression uh, that he's thought this through. Um, that's gobbledygook. He doesn't understand PCR testing. Uh, PCR testing is incredibly accurate, and it looks at it looks at protein structures. It is really good. It's really sensitive about picking out COVID. So if we get a PCR test that says positive, it's COVID. It's COVID 99% of the time. So his his idea that we are testing in a way that that is irresponsible or inaccurate, that's just not, that's just frankly not true. I understand his frustration, but pretending that everything is safe is not the way forward. Yeah, he goes on to say uh, his, to say that PCR tests pick, pick up other things. Have a listen. If you guys understand what's going on with these PCR tests and their cycle thresholds, you know that they're picking up all sorts of other stuff that's not COVID, bacterial infections, other coronaviruses, including the common cold, fragments from the flu shot. If you know that, then you know we're going to be above 2.5% positivity rate until the end of spring. He is playing to uh, people's biases and, you know, throwing in words like cycle thresholds to make himself look smarter, to make people feel like they're smarter and they're in the know, to justify his position. Can you talk about if a PCR test can pick up other things? 
They don't. They really, they don't. They're really, really good at discriminating uh, one kind of disease from another. This is this is or one kind of virus for another. It, it looks at the unique protein structures, and it's it's offensive to me that people might hear that, might believe that, because the last thing that we need from a public health perspective, from a science perspective, is doubt being cast on the basic tools that we use. And this is not the first time I've heard this. Um, mm. This is this is sort of a common refrain to say the testing the testing picks up all sorts of things, what we would call false positives, that's just simply flat out not true. And you will not find a scientist anywhere to agree with, with what we just heard, nowhere. Nor would you find someone who understands this who would agree with that. Yeah. Would you, oh, do you fancy yourself a good barbecue cook? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Right. Um, so you're not going to be giving out barbecue recipes on this station. Um, and, and you're probably not going to hop on social media and give out barbecue recipes. How infuriating is it as a member of the scientific community um, who spent a lot of time educating themselves on all things uh, scientific to hear someone like this who runs a barbecue joint trying to spout that he knows what's going on when it comes to the provincial uh, testing? Well, it's obviously really frustrating. I mean, what, what we need to do is think about what are the limits on free speech? You know, you, free speech is an important part of a democracy, but there are limits. In other words, you can't go into a crowded movie theater and shout fire. That's not okay. You can be charged for that. So I think if you're going to go up on social media and say things to people that are categorically, factually untrue, that could lead people into risky behavior, I think he's crossed the line. Like, to me, that shouldn't be covered by free speech. He's entitled to his own opinions, but he's not entitled to his own facts. So should we be charging these people? I'm not sure. I mean, I, it'd, be, it'd be nice. I, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer or, or a police officer. But it would be nice if there was a way to say something like public mischief, something like you are putting people in harm's way. You are counseling people to, uh, to uh, adopt beliefs and therefore actions based on that belief that, that could harm themselves and others. So I, 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 there, there ought to be something that we can. Uh, I don't like to be heavy-handed with respect mm -hmm. to public health. I think education works. But when someone is standing up and really trying to mislead people and doing it quite deliberately, I think that, that I, I wish we did have tools to, to push back. I really want to thank you for your time today, uh, Colin. It's always a pleasure having you on the show, and thanks so much for you know, shedding light on, on these stories. I think this Adamson's barbecue story is incredibly concerning to me. You throw in a couple of scientific terms, and then all of a sudden someone thinks you're an expert, and, and you're just not, and it's a dangerous practice. So thanks so much for pointing that out. My pleasure. Thanks. Have a great day. Well, that's it for the podcast. Thanks so much for giving us some of your time today. Listen, if you're available, we broadcast live Monday through Friday from 9 till noon on 640 Toronto. Hopefully you can join us sometime. Have a great day.